Welcome to The Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. Today, we have a great guest, Dr. Chris Chen, CEO of ChedMed. Chris, Dr. Chen, welcome to the program. Uh, glad to be here. So uh, the reason I, I've asked you to join the program, and I very much appreciate you doing so, you and your brother, Gordon, wrote a book called The Calling, a memoir of the family, faith, and the future of healthcare. Tell us a little bit about that book. You know, ChedMed is a multi-generational family-owned business, and you know, we were just called on this mission. Uh that, that mission actually uh, came to us through our faith. So let me let me just sort of walk you back a little bit, and I hope you don't mind, Tom. I'm going to go uh, way way back into history here. So go for it. My, my my parents they're they're immigrants, and they came to this country with nothing except their dreams and values. And um, without them, we would have never created the company that we did. And we're just asked so often, "How'd you do it?" Now. Keep in mind, we don't just work together with our offices side by side at headquarters where we overlap on work teams with one another, but we also vacation together, live on the same street. We literally have three homes. My parents, my brother and I live next door to each other, lot line to lot line, and it's not haphazard or coincidental. We're actually deeply and intimately involved in one, one another's lives. We are a family, we, we, we work together, we pray together, and we play together. And we recognize that what we have is really unique. Very few people could actually pull this off. It's just, it's just not easy, because let me walk you through it, the personalities. We're all type A's, right? So we got six between, you know, obviously my, my parents, my brother, his wife, my wife, and I, we're all type A's, and we have strong opinions, and we're extremely driven for success. But mom and dad, they, they kind of started off, they started us on this journey the right way. And our job is now to pass that on to our kids so they can keep going from generation to generation. And what are they gonna keep doing? Our Chen family mission is to transform care of the neediest populations. It is uh, quite compelling, actually, what uh, you are doing. Uh, I, I will say just a little bit of my background. I know I'm not the one being interviewed here, but I come from a, a Catholic family. I was an altar boy for 12 years. My mom was deeply rooted in in faith, as we all were. But at the same time, I know in the book, it talks about faith and even some of your uh, challenges in the, in the beginning and I, I just want to tell you a quick story. So my mom, well, unfortunately, was diagnosed with cancer, oh. and she's uh, she's no longer with us. But uh, you know, when my father-in-law passed, he he passed the Parkinson the complications, the Parkinson's. My mother-in-law and my wife used to find pennies, and they they always thought that that was a sign. And I always told my mom she named me right, a Dally Thomas. And so I said to her many moons ago, I said, Mom, nickels and dimes. <laughs> Show me. The doubting Thomas is wanting to know whether or not you actually 
are there. And um, and sure enough, I was reading your book over the weekend, the last uh, chapter, and I'm helping my daughter uh, flip her house. And uh, I was telling my wife about the, the book and, and about many of the different things you do. And I looked down and sure enough, two dimes sitting on the floor. That's cool. It's just you guys, you know, I started this uh, 18 months ago and looking for someone or or an organization that is really trying to change the delivery of care model. And I have to say, with all with all due, I think ChedMed is uh, the top of the heap here. Uh, I really do respect what you guys are doing and appreciate what you guys are doing because you're doing it against all rules and in the most difficult populations. And so your hat's off. You mentioned God in your book 111 times. I don't know if you know that or not, but uh, it, it really does permeate where you're coming from. So tell us a little bit more about the faith and you know and the and your father's faith and your mother's faith because you know your father could have given up many moons ago and so is your mother from the perspective of the childhood and the background of the childhood to losing a business and and starting all over again tell us a little bit more about that side of the Chen family in well, history. Well, you know, out of difficult circumstances can oftentimes come beautiful things. So, you know, it starts all the way back when, um, where my dad was born. He was born in a city called Fuzhou during the, uh, the Mao Zedong brutal rule. You know, that's when the communists essentially took over. They called it the Cultural Revolution, but really it's the communists took over and killed a whole bunch of people. And at the age of like six months, um, his parents with him smuggled in a fruit basket, sort of escaped to Taipei, which is the capital of Taiwan. And, and and during that time, my grandfather, my dad's dad, became the head of Taiwanese intelligence during this tumultuous time. And, and so as a part of his job, he had to move from Taiwan to then Vietnam. And when my dad was living in Vietnam, he was basically the son of, you know, the head of intelligence of Taiwan. And so he was treated like royalty, had household household help, and anything that an adolescent could want, but it all disappeared. And here's the reason. My grandfather was suspected in a plot to assassinate the potential successor to Mao Zedong um, in communist China. Actually, the secret is, is that they were collaborating with the democratic world to accomplish that. And so um, when, when it didn't happen and, and things came out, the authorities came down hard and they threw him in prison. And he essentially got tortured for, uh, you know, eight years or so. And so the family lost everything. They went from sort of a, a well-known, you know, uppity sort of family to essentially the bottom of the heap. And so uh, my dad was forced to work uh, as a tutor. And he started tutoring, you know, all these kids. But the crazy thing was Chinese people are very superstitious. And they thought it was my dad who brought this misfortune on the family. He was only 13 years old at the time. And so he basically, uh, you know, had a real hard time at it. So the reason why he started tutoring was because he had to go out and start earning money. His father was in prison. You need to bring money home to the family. And plus, quite frankly, you know, you're, you're the cursed one that created this problem in the first place. Well, turns out he did a really good job because when he was tutoring, he was getting real smart and he ended up getting the number one score on the Taiwan National Entrance Exam. This is a test that every Taiwanese high school student takes. And the, the score determines your rank in the entire country, right? And so, of course, 
getting the top score opened up a lot of doors for him. And I remember reading in the book when they came to the door of your home and to inform your family uh, and your father's mother, I believe it was, uh, there was uh, a lack of belief and thought that your father was actually in trouble. And here he was honored with uh, such a prestigious uh, ranking. So hats off to him. Let's shift a little bit. When you talk about uh, the family mission, ShedMed did something very unique. They used the word love. Uh, so love, accountability, and passion are all part of the family mission statement. Can you speak to that? Uh, I mean, because the, using the word love, not that I disagree with it. I, I think you, when you have to do things differently, you have to speak differently and you have to speak uh, directly. And uh, putting those three words together is, again, uh, reflective of your heart and, and where, where you're going. Tell us a little bit more about that mission statement and how it came about. Right, right. So, you know, our, our values for ChemMed are love, accountability, and passion, those three things. And we thought, you know, we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to transform uh, care for the neediest populations. Now, in order to, to, to make a big difference, you can do it from Washington, you can do it from an ivory tower, you can do it from a large corporate center, but they're not going to be very effective. If you really want to make a difference and you want to transform care to the neediest populations, you've, had, you've got to get boots on the ground, you got to roll up your sleeves, and you got to get into those neighborhoods. Now, the kind of people that will go from the safety of their sort of neighborhoods today, a lot of them doctors, they're not living in the neighborhoods that they would be serving in, caregivers, and go into some of the most underserved regions. In some cases, there's like even shootings, right? Like, like you know, half a block, a block away. You got to be just full of love. You have to be full of love. And you got to do it time and day after day after day on an ongoing basis. So we said, let's lean into that. Okay, so that's number one. And, and that's where love came from. The other thing, too, is, you know, one thing that people forget, you said that you come from a long line of faith. And of course, we, we are Christians as well. But one of the things that Christians often forget is love, right, <laughs> is love. And so we said, listen, let's let's sort of remind everybody the importance of love, because if you have enough love, you can create transformation. We marry that love with something we call accountability. Accountability means say what you're going to do and do it. Okay. And so ultimately, um, yeah, we said, well, that's a big problem of healthcare. Healthcare has a problem with accountability. But let me tell you a brief story, Tom. I have four kids. My oldest just went to college, so they're not that young anymore. And obviously now neither am I. But when my kids were young, they all used to play soccer. They're so cute. And they kick the ball sometimes in their own goal. They even like lose every game in the season. And you know what they get at the end of the season? What do all our children get at the end of the season when they're like five, six years old? Trophies. They get a big trophy, right? So they get a trophy for trying. That's what we call it. And when they turn like eight or nine years old, you tell them, I'm sorry, Rebecca, you didn't get a trophy. That's not the way the world works. You don't get a trophy for showing up. You get a trophy for winning, for a result, unless you stay in healthcare. See, if you are in healthcare, you get a trophy for trying. When your surgeon shows up, to operate on your mother. And whether or not they do a good job or not, guess what he gets? He gets a $1,000 trophy and the hospital gets a $20,000 trophy. Actually, if they ha- there's a complication, and this was studied in the Journal of American Medical Association, you actually get two trophies. You get a trophy for doing the original attempt, the hospital gets a $20,000 trophy, and you get another trophy for actually fixing the mistake that was made or the complication. So we have a system in which we are sort of giving out trophies for trying. 
Okay. We said that cannot be. We must hold people accountable for a patient's outcome. So therefore we said love, accountability, and passion. Passion is just the energy that you bring on a day in, day out basis to achieve the vision. And that's how we got there. Compelling. So let's transition a little bit more towards the business in and of itself. But before we do that, there's a very important aspect of your background, and that is page 136 of the book. That's where you and your brother are on the wrestling mat. Oh. And uh, so I'm a, I'm a wrestler, too. Uh, it's a fraternity in and of itself. And I actually officiated for 40 years and did the finals three years at the Greensboro Coliseum in North Carolina. So did the state finals. So I never got as far as a wrestler, but I coached it for 10 years. I officiated it. I love the sport. When I, again, reading the book and I, again, all the great things you guys do from a family and a perspective. And, and again, I just have a passion for that sport. So just wanted to bring that out a, a bit. Just out of curiosity, how much do you think the this, the sport itself, whether it be wrestling, which I might joke and say is a sport where football is a game, but <laughs> but the, but how much do you think uh, your high level of competition led to your efforts moving forward in life? So and for the sake of fairness, you know, we were both football players and wrestlers. Wrestling right. played a huge role, huge role in in a number of things. The first thing is, is it really bonded my brother and I together, right? Wrestling is the opportunity to sort of sharpen each other up. You have to push against each other and sharpen each other up and still have a great deal of affection for each other, right? So you go into a room, you beat each other up, bruises, black eyes, and at the end, you still have to walk out as either figurative or literal brothers, right? And so that was really important. Even as much as last night, you know, we were having a pretty heated conversation. We were wrestling about an important topic, right? And so that's very healthy. But it was during that wrestling uh, time that we knew that we could work together. We knew we could work together. And so now, you know, being in, having well over 100 medical centers across, uh, you know, 40 cities and 15 states and being, you know, one of the largest and certainly with the best having the best outcomes in the United States for a transformative care model. You know, Fortune magazine says we're going to, quote unquote, change the world. Yeah, I think back to those, wrestling days. you know, I think back to those wrestling days. And I said, you know what, had I not had a brother that we could have wrestled with each other on some of the most challenging questions. Healthcare has a lot of challenging questions. Ch- healthcare as a whole is one big challenging question and come out of that room sharper, stronger, we wouldn't have been able to do what we do today. I have uh, three other brothers and we all wrestled as well. So there were four of us in the, there's six of us total, but four wrestlers. So, so awesome. So, you know, Ched Med, you know, there's this whole argument in the market, as you well know. And first, let me go back and say, you know, we talk about healthcare reform. I'm a believer that only two things happen when healthcare reform comes out. It doesn't matter who the reformer is, but two things are going to absolutely happen. And that is doctors are going to get paid less and patients are going to have to pay more. Uh, and unfortunately, it has very little to do with outcomes. And so you are, Chedman is totally at risk. So one of the things that I've said a thousand times on this program is that the average Medicare patient with five chronic conditions sees nine different doctors in a given year. CMS data says that they're only in front of their doctor 15 hours. My view is, and the, and the problem in healthcare is, what happens the other 8,745 hours? That's really where it, the patient needs to be most influenced if we're going to receive change. Your thoughts on that? 
So, you know, Tom, interesting that, that actually it's not 15 hours, it's 15 minutes. Did you know the average Medicare patient gets 15 minutes of FaceTime with their primary care doctor? Yeah, so, 15 minutes, 15 minutes per encounter. But I, my, my analogy was so 15 minutes per year or no, across the year. Per year. That's right. So um, and so what we did was we said, listen, you, 15 you, hours you, per year. Sorry. Yeah, you can't you really can't make a difference if you can't spend time with people. So you, you brought it up before. You said, hey, healthcare reform leads to doctors making less, patients paying more. In our environment, we have doctors making more, patients paying less, and we can reduce hospitalization rates by 30 to 50%, reduce ER visits by 50%. We reduce stroke rates by 20 to 30%. We double cancer survival rates at six months. We reduce heart failure emissions by 70 plus percent. All while doctors are doing better, patients are paying less, and with net promoter scores or customer service scores that are not just industry leading, but all industry leading. And the reason why we're able to do that is quite simple. We deputize primary care doctors. We make them the quarterback. And we give them the right training, the right teams, and the right technology to go into the most underserved communities and fundamentally improve health, not prevent people from dying, help drive health. That's a big difference, okay? And so, and we do this in not just a at-risk model, we are a global full risk model, meaning we are accountable for the total cost of care, 100%. We are an inspiration that it can be done it can be done and we can do it and you can scale it. You know, in your book on page 172, you write, our current health system doesn't think of healthcare correctly. 80%, 80% of person's health is determined not by what is learned or talked about in the medical school. It's genetics along with lifestyle behaviors, plus overcoming educational safety, environmental and food insecurity barriers to good care. Yep. Genetic. It's interesting that you call that out. I, I, I actually agree 100%, but we don't do any genetic testing. Yeah, yeah. If, if it's so critical, don't you think that that needs to be part of a reform and, and how we engage a patient? You don't, we don't know what we don't know, so therefore we're just going to continue to guess, uh, and therefore we're going to get it wrong, and, uh, and ultimately the patient continues to not have the best potential life. Thoughts so on that? So first of all, you know, I love what you, I, I, I love this concept that people are starting to learn that what doctors learn in medical school, pills, procedures, and referrals, those things make a lot of money in healthcare. But guess what? They don't make that much of a difference in terms of health. They do make a difference, but they're only about 20% of a patient's health. So the other 80% is what we call genetics, lifestyles, and behaviors, right? And what we call social barriers to care. So let's walk through this, okay? Of those three categories, I get it. Genetics is an important part. But the problem with genetics is, is that now that we have the information, how do I make a difference? That's the reason why that genetics right now hasn't become mainstream, because once you discover you have these challenges before you start manifesting them, what can you do about it? So let me focus on the other two things, because you can do something about that today and you can get a massive difference in outcomes. So let me start with lifestyles and behaviors. As a heart doctor, we believe and I believe, I at one point I had five board certifications 
in cardiac and vascular diseases and, in, and, and other specialties and trained at some of the best places in the world. And yet we believe that 70 to 90%, depending on who you talk to, I actually believe it's closer to 90% of heart disease in this country, which is the number one disease in this country that causes death, is preventable from just lifestyles and behaviors. Can you believe that? You, uh, I, I, you, you, you cover that in the book uh, in some degree. So, yes, I do. I do agree yeah. with it. I, I, I'm a personal believer in that in the statement that I read and in, in that it's it's all about lifestyle and behavior. Sometimes healthcare is not about the pill. Sometimes it's hey, what about the exercise? What about the diet? Uh, again, my father uh, had diabetes. He had every complication imaginable. He started doing dialysis at home. He lost a leg. He lost a second leg. He lost an arm. He lost two fingers. We converted the dining room to a bedroom. I know all about or, or what happens when you don't listen to your doctor. Right. I, I, I've lived so, it. Yeah. So in other words, you know, pills and procedures and referrals to specialists is only 20 percent of the answer. The other 80 percent, at least for heart disease, I think is mostly lifestyles and behaviors. And so here's the, the scary thing. And you ask, what am I going to do about that? With all the training that I had at all these prestigious institutions, I took zero minutes of lifestyles and behavior training, zero, not one minute did I sit in the classroom or be or was taught by a famous professor about how to impact heart disease through lifestyles and behaviors when up to 90% of heart disease is preventable and treatable with lifestyles and behaviors. That is a problem. So we have forgot, we've got to fundamentally change the way that we're training doctors. But here's the problem. Who's training doctors? Hospitals. Well, how do hospitals generate revenue? Pills, procedures, and referrals. So they're gonna in, they're gonna really influence hard on training people on, on pills, procedures, and referrals. They're not gonna index at all, at least historically, I didn't receive that on lifestyles and behaviors, and that needs to happen. By the way, that's that's not just for heart disease. The number two killer in this country is cancer. And studies have shown that almost half, close to half of all cancers. Our lifestyles and behavior related. So we are missing something majorly if we're ignoring lifestyles and behavior. The other category that we need to hit are what I call social barriers to care. Some people call them social determinants of health. That's Those are problems usually of poverty. Can I get to my doctor? Can I understand what they're saying? Can I get an appointment? How come hospital systems keep moving out of poor neighborhoods and moving into, na- into rich neighborhoods and all their clinics as well? So those are all major issues. Is my grandson stealing my social security check? Am I scared to go outside? How am I gonna walk if I'm scared of getting shot in South Chicago, right? So those are all real issues that impact health, not even including the anxiety of not knowing if you can pay ne- next month's rent in the middle of winter and you're an 80-year-old woman living in Philadelphia. I'm sorry, that, that's going to impact your health. So we've got to solve those challenges and we're over-indexing on pills, procedures, and referrals. And the reason why we're doing that is because economically, that's where one-fifth of our United States GDP is focused on, pills, procedures, and referrals. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And we think so much alike. The And the idea, again, just using my father as, as an as an example, you know, it's just it's just not about taking the pill and being on maintenance. Right. Are you, are you compliant and persistent with your drug therapy? Right. A person with diabetes, I always think about the biggest loser. I don't know if you recall that show, but the biggest loser. Right. So it, it tells us that through diet and exercise with 
uh, medical supervision, you can uh, go into remission. It's not you, just because you have diabetes doesn't mean you have to die with it. You can you can change it. You can change the course of life. And I think the public just isn't educated enough to realize that drinking that soda really isn't good for you, whether it's diet soda or not. It's just not good for you. Uh, and um, and again, I I've, I've lived it to to know that uh, my my dad used to drink diet soda and and eat my mother's pasta. Well, you know, Tom, yeah. that, this story, this is actually in the book as well, right? So, you know, let, let me walk you through, you know, one of my patients. This is a real story. Uh, she had heart failure. She was grossly overweight, 400 pounds, right? You know, five foot five or five foot four, I'm trying to remember. And, you know, she had been in a hospital, you know, five times that year. Each of those hospitalization rates was $20,000. So it was $100,000 worth of hospitalizations spent on her. I co- she comes to see me and I discover that she's eating a bucket of fried chicken every night. So I said, you know what? Rather than giving you more pills and procedures, you and I are going to see each other every week for the next two months, eight visits. Okay, just eight visits. And I'm going to make sure that you stop eating a bucket of fried chicken every night at midnight. You know what? After eight weeks, she stayed on her program of not eating a bucket of fried chicken every night at midnight. She lost 150 pounds. She no longer had end-stage heart failure. It hasn't been admitted to the hospital since. That was like a decade ago. Think about that. You, I literally cured her heart failure in eight visits by monitoring her lifestyles and behaviors. You know what? And, and, and saved the tax stop payers an additional $100,000 a year every single year. And, and, and she was probably only going to live another year or so with end-stage heart failure, right? And then, of course, her whole family has the opportunity to enjoy her for decades longer. I mean, such a simple intervention. Exactly. So uh, a funny story. Again, my daughter, who I'm, I'm her laborer with her husband, uh, remodeling her house. I'm coming home, I'm reading again, reading the book. And I was telling my wife about this story and, you know, we, and it was late at night. It was like 1030 Dairy Queen, who has a great strawberry Sunday that I love, right. Is on the way. And, and she says, do you want to stop? And I read that, uh, read that story. And I said, no, I can't stop. So I gave up my strawberry Sunday just on that story. Again, you, you, you plant seeds and it's, um, it's, it's really compelling. It's all about behaviors. It's not about the pill. Chris, any closing thoughts? Yeah, uh, people are asking us all the time, what's the secret? What's the secret behind ChemMed success? And I said, you know what? Why don't I go ahead and put it into a book and, and literally just list it out with some pretty interesting stories of how we got there. And the reason why that we are comfortable releasing all these secrets is because the need is just so great. No matter how fast we grow, we're probably not going to hit more than 5% of the people that need this help and need this care. So if, if you want, if you're looking to be inspired, about a family that, uh, an immigrant family that was able to move from sort of rags to sort of transformation. And you you want to be inspired about what could work for the future of healthcare. Pick up the book, the recipes there, and uh, join us in this revolution. Love, accountability, and passion. You got to love it. That, uh, Dr. Chris uh, Chen and his brother, Gordon Chen. Uh, the book is called The Calling, available on Amazon. It's the memoirs of a family of faith and the future of healthcare. Dr. Chen, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining the program. Thanks, Tom. I want to thank the show sponsors. HP, HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need, plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services 
to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern, throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Foley Tom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.